What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up, the second of two shows this week analysing the outcome of the French election. We'll be hearing from Sophie Petter and Ben Judah about why it matters not only for France, but for the rest of the world too. Emmanuel Macron's recent win in the French election allowed those concerned about the rise of the far-right and populism in France to breathe a sigh of relief. And you can hear our debate on Macron's influence over France's domestic politics in our recent Sunday debate. But today we're talking about France's place in the wider world during an era of military conflict and uncertainty as we emerge from the pandemic. Sophie Petter is Paris bureau chief for The Economist and author of Revolution Française, Emmanuel Macron and the Quest to Reinvent a Nation. And joining Sophie is Ben Judah, journalist, author and senior fellow of the Atlantic Council. His books include This is London and Fragile Empire, which focuses on Putin's Russia. Hosting the discussion is Rosamund Irwin, media editor for The Sunday Times. We also had some live audience questions too. Let's join Rosamund and the conversation. Certainly in the international press, there's been a narrative that this was a big win for the far right, even if they lost, and Macron squeaked through. Do you think that's actually a fair assessment? Ben, what are your thoughts on that? Well, if you'd asked me in November 2015, uh, which of the following three countries I was the most worried about, Britain, France, or the United States, I would have said I was worried about France. You have the major terrorist attack at the Bataclan. There's... uh, you know, a risk, uh, not a completely outside risk of intercommunal violence in the uh, Beaulieu kind of suburbs. There's been heightened uh, anti-Semitic dangers and attacks on uh, uh, Jewish uh, localities and uh, and elsewhere. And you get a sense that both the centre-right and the centre-left are sort of exhausted. The uh, administration of François Hollande is dying. And I would have told you, well, you know, what we know about France's political history, it can be quite unstable and things could go badly wrong. And I think now we need to adjust our lens that actually France, we're going for a very you know unstable period internationally because of technological change, energy changes, international changes. France is going to have ended up being ruled for 10 years by a moderate centrist reformer, whilst the United States would have elected Donald Trump, Britain would have chosen uh Brexit. So I think we need to sort of let go of some of our, you know, dare I say, kind of Anglo-Saxon prejudices that France is somehow inherently less stable than uh, Britain or or America. So that's the kind of first point. The second point is 
yes, there's that trend line from Jean-Marie Le Pen with his 18%. The last election, Marine Le Pen got 33%. This time, we see her kind of crossing 40%. But there has been uh, an evolution. You know, Jean-Marie Le Pen was... Uh, you know, questioning the Holocaust, was talking of mass expulsions, was uh, wanting to rip up all of France's uh, alliances and kind of international pacts. In the last election, uh, his daughter, Marine, uh, Marine Le Pen, had, you know, already distanced herself from some of his anti-Semitic record and was, uh, you know, playing footsie on questions of how, what exactly she would do with some of France's alliances. But she was still running on a platform to leave the Euro, to leave the Euro and to have a big break with France's position uh, internationally. And in this campaign, now whether or not she was telling the truth uh, is something up for debate. I think she certainly wasn't. But she did run saying, I don't want to leave the Euro. I don't want to leave the EU. She didn't really mention immigration. She distanced herself from uh, anti-Semitism. And she changed the name of the party of which her father was expelled from. So for those French voters that took her from 33% to over 40%, um, I think, you know, we've got to bear that in mind, that they felt that she had moderated to a, uh, certain, uh, to a certain uh, extent. On the other side, you know, the negative is I do feel a lot of the kind of Islamophobic tendencies of her, her party, in fact, they're more than tendencies, they're sort of part of that party's identity, have kind of mainstreamed uh, in France and are now present across the system. Um, just a reminder to the audience, please tweet to us using the hashtag um, IQ2. And also, if you can, if you want to ask a question, please do so by clicking on the Ask Question button using the video screen, then press Send. And I'm going to incorporate um, our first question um, from the audience into the next question because they're quite related. So um, there's a little bit of what-if politics here. Um, obviously, this election took place with the backdrop of the war in Ukraine and Europe uniting against Putin. How big of an impact do you think a Le Pen press presidency would have had on that and then the question from the audience which i think ties very nicely in does president macron support a rapid entry of ukraine into the eu um i'm happy shall i, shall I have a go at the first of those at least or, or both of them if you want but i would like to come back at, at what something that ben said I, he's absolutely right that uh, marine le pen in the terms of the public perception has moderated her image but I think it's incredibly important, and it has what was it was all the way through the campaign to look very carefully at what she's what she's not saying, what's in the program, and what she's you know reading between the lines in her program during the campaign. You're absolutely right; she was all over the uh, country talking about cost of living. She was uh, promising to bring down VAT on petrol prices, on the on food prices. She was very much uh, engaged with really what voters were concerned about in their daily life, and in that she was smart. But if you look at her program, the number one issue was immigration. I mean, absolutely clear. She wanted to uh, end the automatic right to citizenship for those born in, the, in France. She wanted to uh, ban the, the Muslim headscarf on the streets of France. I mean, this was a very, uh, you know, France first. She wanted a, a French national preference program policy for the allocation of jobs, of housing uh, and benefits. So it was, it was an extraordinarily, I think, you know, nationalistic program wrapped up in a sort of, you know, softer packaging. And I, and, and I think that that, as, as you were saying, Ben, earlier, that emerged actually during the, the, the debate, in particular when Macron laid into her over her links to Putin. So I'll just try and then move to your question, which is what would have happened? I mean, you know, Marine Le Pen didn't want to take France out of the European Union, but her effective 
policies would have led to a dismantling of it from within because she would have set herself on a collision course with the European Union over fundamental law. I mean, French national preference isn't possible under EU law. She would have sought alliances with countries like Hungary and Poland that would be a sort of an alliances of the illiberal democracy, illiberal leaders of, of the European Union. And she would have, she said very clearly, if, the, if Putin ends his war, I can imagine Putin's Russia becoming an ally again. Now, you know, she, she had that photo taken of herself with Putin, which she put in one of her early election brochures, and she then had to pulp them because it became rather embarrassing. But I don't think anyone should be under any illusions as to what sort of a France, uh, what sort of a, a, you know, a France Marine Le Pen would have been leading inside the European Union. Um, on Ukraine, I, I don't think Macron wants a, an early entry point, but I'll move over to let Ben speak on that if he wants to do, or come back on some of those points. Um, why not to kind of come back on some of your earlier points, actually, was I, can, I completely agree with you that uh, once you looked closely into the programme, it was offering uh, a path that might have led to the disintegration of the European Union from within, and that Macron really skillfully managed to expose a lot of the nationalist kind of hypocrisy and the dangers of that in the debate. But my point was more should we view her score as a kind of a triumph of far-right inevitabilism, that at the next election, the far-right is just going to, going to sort of triumph and push this over, which is how she's going to present it? Or should we look at it uh, the other way, which is that actually Macron has made the question of France's membership of the euro, France's membership of the EU, uh, so strong in the public debate over the last few years that even Le Pen has to pretend that she wants to remain in uh, both and is merely a sort of reformer. So I think it, it would be a mistake to always try and view this as the far right shaping the debate and pulling us in a direction when I think we've got a pretty clear instance here from this election to the last election of the centrist candidate pulling the debate in his direction. And I, that's, how it, that's how it looks to me. And I think that that's an achievement of Macron's that we should credit. But my worry is that what I like about Macron is bound out of what I don't like about him. And what I like about him is that when you look at Britain, when you look at Germany, in very different ways, you've got this sort of politics of fantasy. Like Germany doesn't want to use nuclear power and engages lots of magical thinking about how it can avoid using nuclear power, but also not use gas and also achieve net zero. And actually, there's a huge gaping hole there in the, in the finances. And in Britain, there's a huge amount of magical thinking about trade around Brexit. There are no, there are no real solutions for small and medium-sized enterprises exporting to uh, the uh, EU with the current deal and this is just sort of waved away and denied and this sort of interesting mirror of uh, Germany and energy. And Macron is probably the European politician with the least magical thinking in him. Like there's always a serious thought through answer or pretty much everything that's always about like maximizing the efficiency of what France is presented with at the current moment. And he's very good at that. But what there isn't is there isn't really a sort of dream of France of tomorrow. There isn't a kind of vision of what a different France would look like that would really transform society. And I do think that there's a significant percentage of France's young, of France's minorities, of the France that voted for the far left or the far right, that are hungry for a, a, something transformative, something that could really unblock uh, the problems that he views as simply part of life, as part of a kind of free market economy. So I think that maybe it's the lack of dreams that... Uh, 
Macron is not presenting that could eventually kind of uh, begin to pose a problem in uh, his government in the years ahead as people search for them. Well, during on that point, Ben, one of the big questions is what happens after Macron? If you have a politics that's so tied to one individual and a party they have created, is there a natural succession here? And and I think maybe people are very worried about what comes next um, in terms of the far right, in part because they think there's going to be a vacuum that Macron has occupied, you know, in the centre uh, next time around. So should we, is that an outsider's view or are people in France concerned about that? And is that a fair concern? Let me answer that. Um, I do actually think that's a problem. It might be slightly exaggerated. And if you look at um, France's kind of local governance, if you look at France's regions, if you look at even to a certain extent presence in parliament, like the old centre-right and the old centre-left are actually still alive. But these parties are still there. They're just incapable of producing these strong figures that can, um, you know, fight for, you know, power at the national level. So I actually do think that if the right person came along with skills and charisma, both of those parties could actually be potentially revived in the future. I wouldn't uh, write them off at all, in, uh, in fact. And I think the second thing that I, I think is I think that the French public is, you know, it's actually kind of, it, I don't think it's sort of going in one uni direction towards the, the far right. I think that uh, compelling or charismatic figures from different trajectories could present themselves next time and form parties uh, that could suddenly kind of shake up the political landscape, that somebody else could do a Macron uniting the left or somebody else could do a Macron uniting the right and the far right. I think French politics is kind of quite quite fluid there. I do think that there's a potential in France maybe for celebrities or comedians or somebody to kind of truly play that populist role. I don't think we've quite seen that. Uh, yeah, and I think this comes back to sort of why Le Pen lost, which is, you know, Brexit as an idea. That really is an idea that incarnated something for people. People believed in that idea. Whether they were right to or wrong to is is not a topic for, for us tonight. And people in the United States, they believed in Trump. He incarnated something. And I don't think Marine Le Pen has ever incarnated anything for anyone. I think that it's a protest vote. I don't think even most of her voters thought that oh, we just want her to be in power and she's going to sort everything out like Trump voters did. I think people voted for her, sort of rejecting the system. And I think that, you know, somebody else will come along at one point that will, uh, that could truly um, capture that anti-establishment feeling. But I'm not necessarily sure that it will have to be from the far right. It could be a united right, far right candidate, or it could even potentially be from the left in a few years, you know, especially if we're going to have this severe uh, shock um, to do with kind of energy prices and cost of living. I'm not determinist about it. And Sophie, what do you think on that? I'm I'm wondering whether your question was more about whether there would be a centrist successor. Um, I mean, Ben's covered very well the sort of potential for um, populists or somebody on the far right to emerge, but I suspect I'm wondering whether that's what you were asking. Is that right? I mean, I think in in that sense, it is a really a good question because um, you know Macron has set up his party. It's very much a one a one man party. Um, I mean, this part is a party that's centered around him. Uh, he makes all the decisions that matter. You know, right down to the allocation of constituencies for 
the legislative elections which are taking place on June the 12th and the 19th and the 19th. So those are coming up and there's a lot of maneuvering going on right now for people to work out who's going to be standing where um, and, you know, what, what's allocated to, 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 to who's allocated to what. And that is, you know, the sort of micromanagement is very much the way he operates both within the party and within uh, in the presidency. So if that's the case, it's actually, I think, you know, possibly deliberately, but it's very difficult for him to uh, let anyone emerge because that person, you know, and I think succession planning is to be something we, we, that was really going to be interesting to watch. Does the party even survive, you know, not, not having Macron around? Under the French constitution, you can't serve more than two consecutive terms. So in 2027, that will be it for him. And who is the person who might be able to hold the centre? Some people talk about, um, you know, figures like Edouard Philippe, who was a former uh, Prime Minister under Macron, an interesting character. Uh, you know, he's from the centre right. Uh, he may not be in tune with the sort of the mood of of young young voters, but you know, he's somebody who's got competence and a track record in holding the the sort of middle ground. Um, but I think you know, it's it is not an it's not an obvious environment to nurture a successor when you have a sort of management style like Macron does and a party that's very much built around one person. We've got a very related question to, to that question. Um, Sarah asks, what next after Macron? His movement is based around a personality. So must we expect a non-centrist to win in 2027? So I guess just building on what, what you've said there, is there any way someone in the centre ground might come through. Yeah, I, th I think somebody like Edouard Philippe is a good example of that. There, are, there is a younger generation. I, mean, I don't think one should overstate it. There are, there are, you know, younger politicians who've come up through the ranks on Emmanuel Macron's watch. I mean, I think of people like Clément Bourne, who's his Europe minister. I think of people like Julien de Normandie, who's been talked about. He's his agricultural minister. He's been talked about as a possible prime minister under a, in a second term Macron presidency. There are these are people who you know had no political existence before before Macron. There are a lot of young uh, MPs in the National Assembly who came into politics because they wanted to join Macron's party. They're, they've come from all sorts of walks of life, and I can think of people that you know they were high school teachers or uh, there were lawyers or there was a, there's a, a farmer from Brittany. I mean, there are all sorts of people who've emerged. I think that the, it's it's not impossible. I think the point I tried just trying to make is that. It, it's going to, to establish yourself and get the sort of credibility you need to, to, to run for the presidency is really quite something. And five years is not a long time and it's not an obvious environment in which that to happen, but it's not impossible. And I think that those sorts of people are the ones to, to keep a very close eye on. Um, just a reminder to the audience, please tweet to us using the hashtag IQ2. And also you can ask a question by clicking on the ask question button under the video screen and press send. Um, one element... Uh, that has been a bit discussed in, in, in the British press is how um, the geographic breakdown of votes and how certain areas really did, uh, the north and, and obviously um, the south uh, of France really did, um, you know, Marine Le Pen perform much better there than, say, in, in the heartlands natural of Paris, natural Macron territory. Um, is France a very geographically divided country compared with, say, the UK? Or is it just like every country, there are these geographic divisions between, say, urban and rural areas and also um, former uh, sort of um, industrial areas. Um, should I come to you, Sophie, first on that? Uh, if you like. I mean, I think, yes, if you look at the sort of much more granular level of voting patterns on Sunday, 
you do see that I take Paris, I mean, 85% of Paris voted for Macron. If you take a sort of village, one I happen to visit called Auchy-les-Mines, it's in the mining basin of northern France, and it voted nearly 70% for Marine Le Pen. This is a, you know, a, a declining a former industrial area that has really lost a lot of jobs and people are uh, pretty sort of, it's a bleak place. People have a bleak outlook on life and they think, uh, they spoke, they thought that Marine Le Pen was the one who, who, whose promises or for a better life were, were the ones to sort of click to, to hold on to. So she's, she, and she, this really matches her campaigning as well. She was all over the villages and the semi-rural areas. It's not necessarily, you know, by, by, by rural, I don't mean sort of necessarily farming communities, but I mean, people who live in small villages, they, they depend on their cars, they use their cars to get to work, to go to the shops, um, and they are very affected by the rising cost of, of, of uh, petrol at the pump. And they feel, I think, that there is this sort of um, slightly condescending attitude by all the politicians who live in the big cities who just say things like, get on your bicycle, and here comes the green transition, and if you don't live near a metro, well, then we don't really understand you. And I think that there is that, that disconnection which Marine Le Pen really understood, um, that uh, means that people who live in those areas, and don't forget those were the areas where the Gilets Jaunes uh, Yellow Jacket protesters all came out and, and originally encamped on roundabouts. So I think there is, that. it's really that is the sort of, I think the most fundamental divide um, in, in the Sunday's voting pattern. And Ben, one of the other ways it's very divided is, is down demography lines. So young people in France, um, didn't actually support Macron in the numbers. What one might assume, if 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 you think of Britain's British politics, that um, you know it was very skewed to young people backing a more uh, centrist, well, or, or rejecting the far right rather. Um, but that isn't the case in France. Um, what do you think is different about French politics in terms of young people's attitudes? So two points there. The first is that there are some very popular. Uh, graphs going around on Twitter showing a kind of majority of young people at some point uh, that appeared to be ready to back uh, the uh, far right with Le Pen. There's actually a little bit of a... That's actually not exactly what those said because most of them weren't going to vote. And then if you kind of added up the numbers, it kind of looked like the majority were on the far right when in fact, no, the majority only around a quarter of them uh, were. So I think that was a little a case of uh, some bad statistics kind of confusing uh, people. Like young people in France, there are more of them that are on the far right than there are in the UK. I wouldn't say that there are that many more of them that are on the far right than there are in the United States. There's also a lot of millennials, you know, who have voted for far right or kind of uh, extremist kind of candidates in the, uh, you know, in the United States. And I think it's important not to caricature them. Uh, what the majority of them are is sort of disaffected with politics, disaffected with the establishment. And they feel that the current system, like really all of it, from the way the market is arranged to the way that, you know, the, the way that the European Union works to the way that their kind of careers function is sort of under delivering uh, to them. And they wish that someone could could offer them a more hopeful, a more hopeful and not just a more efficient vision of tomorrow, which is what Macron is uh, uh, offering uh, there. So I think that um, looking at... Um, you know, what Macron has to do now. Like a lot of the questions coming in from the audience about the future. So I think it would be interesting to talk about that is I think in a lot of ways, 
Macron needs to be less Macron in order to make the Macron vision succeed. And that means Macron needs to um, domestically govern uh, a lot more with elements of the left or elements of the centre-right, take their ideas on board. He needs to listen a lot more. He needs to bring figures that would be perhaps willing to serve in the government into that government. He needs to uh, treat his party not as just this incredibly macho exercise with En Marche, E-M, like his own initials. He needs to treat it as a party. I think a name change might be a very good idea. I think actually empowering that party to be a party for the future might be a very good idea. He needs to allow young people and allow a prime minister to be a powerful voice in the future. And that means having a little less E-M, a little less Macron in the public uh, debate. But I think that's very important to ensure that his kind of politics endures uh, in France over the next few decades. And then kind of internationally, I think in the European uh, Union, um, Macron's a great believer in the European Union. And I think he's done one very important thing, which is continue to push the case of more common European debts, which I think is absolutely crucial for a, a juster, fairer and more lasting kind of Eurozone. But often Macron has not been very good at playing European Union, which is quite a complicated game involving the council and allies. And I think, again, not being, you know, sort of cavalier seul, as you say in kind of French, not being the kind of lone horseman, not trying to act like the kind of providential man of destiny in the European Council might be more effective and working harder with alliances. Macron's got a great opportunity now that he has Draghi in Rome, he has Schultz in Berlin, and doing things with them and maybe letting... Draghi take more of the limelight, maybe letting Schultz take more of the limelight could really be a kind of good way for him to actually anchor in those uh, wins. And I think in domestic politics, I think that Macron needs to offer, you know, more of a, a sort of dream for, for France and for France's young people and more of a vision about how their lives are going to be better and why they should, should be optimistic about their lives that isn't just well, you've sort of got a job now, unemployment's gone down a little bit and, you know, you can still save up and get a, get a, uh, and sort of get a mortgage. It'll be very expensive and live at the fringes of this town and maybe save up and buy a new patio door. I think that there's a, a hunger for something uh, in French uh, youth that he's not providing. And I think that he needs to think about that and dig into that part of himself that once dreamed of being a novelist. So this is taking a question um, from the audience and just a reminder, you can ask a question by clicking on the ask question button under the video screen. Um, what do you make of Mélenchon's performance? Do you think centrists would back a leftist against Le Pen in the way that I think we should say some leftists support a centrist in the same scenario? Um, Sophie, should we come to you on that? Yeah, uh, yes, with pleasure. Can I just come back on a couple of points that Ben made? It's it's really interesting to hear your your view your view of what's going on here. I, a couple of things. One about the young vote. If you break down the 18 to 24 and peel that away from the 25 to 35, the 18 to 24 year olds actually vote, voted more for Macron than for than the national average, and it's it's only after 25 that they that that that, that shifted. So I think there is a young vote that does vote uh, for Macron. I wonder if what part of the Le Pen appeal was her promise to abolish income tax for the under 30s. I mean, I do think that that was one thing she went on and on about, and I can't I I, I suspect it did stick in quite a lot of people's minds. The last point I think I wanted to make about Ben's comments is I, I agree with you about this vision, the sort of vision thing. Europe. 
or is very much part of that, but I don't think Europe by, by itself is enough. The one thing I think he might be, he, there may be some space for him to, 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 to sort of grab it if he, if he decides to, is, was the subject of his very last rally um, in Marseille last Saturday, the Saturday weekend. And there, the whole um, speech was focused around the environment. And it really was, uh, you know, in electoral terms, it was very clear. It was a pitch for the Mélenchon vote. Um, and young people are much more great-minded as a general rule, and so he was trying to trying to get that vote out. But if he's serious about that, I think there is there the possibility of creating something that does make people dream about a better place to live in, a better planet, a better France, something to sort of uh, get a sort of positive uh, view of the way in which things could go. To go just to move back to your question on Mélenchon. Um, Yes, I think that there would be clearly exactly the same thing would have happened if it had been a Mélenchon-Le uh, Pen runoff. Uh, Macron would have very clearly have said, no, not a single vote for Le Pen. You know, you, you hear him in his, he did this at this victory speech at the Eiffel Tower on, on Sunday evening. When people, when he mentions the far right, some of the supporters start whistling or booing. And he always says, don't whistle at them, don't boo them, fight their ideas. And, you know, I think that, that that's that's part of his, his you know, it's been part of his campaign to speech all the way through. So I think there's no doubt in my mind at all that that's what he would have called for, even though if, even if, like Mélenchon supporters not wanting Macron, they don't like him, uh, Macron supporters won't like Mélenchon, but they would definitely vote for him against Le Pen. I, I think that, that that is quite clear. Um, it was, I think that was your question, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was about Mélenchon and whether um, the centrist, yeah. Uh, yeah, centrist would have backed the far, far left. Um, do you want to add anything to that, Ben? I was just going to talk maybe about the French left and the problems of the uh, French left, and you know, having a left in the when you're a member of the the European Union, and you know, the French left is being split between a pro-European uh, left that assumes the euro and that assumes the you know, free movement and the single market and a Eurosceptic left, which is Mélenchon's left, which wants to challenge the euro, challenge the commission, challenge Germany and tear up the rules. And, you know, Mélenchon is a red Eurosceptic and somebody with a really fierce uh, anti-Berlin uh, uh, rhetoric. So it's, I think that's kind of important to kind of uh, draw to people's attention, really, in the in the audience, that um, you know we've not had the left split in the UK. We might have if we'd somehow had a second referendum and stayed in the EU. Maybe they would have ended up being two different uh, Labour parties—a sort of Corbyn-led Labour Party and a sort of Labour Party led by somebody else. But um, it's—I uh, I think that's important to kind of realise. I think that's. Can I just come back? I think that's a really important point that Ben just made, and particularly in the context of the legislative elections, because right now there are, as part of all the manoeuvring that's going on, one of the questions that's trying to that the, the, the left is trying to answer is whether or not to enter a coalition agreement ahead of um, the legislative elections that would include the Green Party and Mélenchon's um, France, La France Insoumise. Insoumise. So if that's the case, it would put together two parties who have a radically different uh, view of Europe, as Ben just explained. And that, that, the, that, the, the recipe there for a kind of complete clash of uh, ideology and, and, and outlook in terms of foreign, foreign policy is, is just sort of immense. But it's, 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 a very, it's a very real prospect that they will get together for the, uh, 
for the legislative elections. Um, I'm going to take another question from the audience. And it's a really interesting one. It's about France's overseas territories, where obviously um, Le Pen both um, campaigned and then did, did performed incredibly strongly. Uh, why was she much more successful in the overseas areas? So, so we're talking about places like Martinique and Reunion Island and, and so on. Um, why did I mean she won won she won a majority in, in those areas? Is that a protest vote or are there other factors at play? Uh, I might have a go at answering this one because I, I was actually in the uh, uh, French Caribbean uh, not that long ago. Um, a couple of uh, things to think about here. The first is that turnouts incredibly low in these places. Um, not a lot of people are voting. Not a lot of people are engaged. The second point is that. French COVID restrictions were rejected by the population in the French Caribbean, you know, that didn't view this as necessary to them, that uh, felt that this was real interference in their everyday lives, that didn't believe uh, uh, that they should be treated in the same way that people in you know, French territories in, in Europe uh, should be, on the metropole uh, should be. And there is uh, was a lot of kind of police issues to do with policing around that, protests, police uh, uh, violence. And that it, those, those are the key reasons there that you see Macron uh, doing uh, very badly. And Le Pen was able to pick up on some of that COVID scepticism, anti-lockdown mood. And, you know, these are tourist islands. And if you just put, if being put into intense lockdown uh, was kind of absolutely terrible for the economy. It took away the economy for for a period. And I think that's the crucial one there. Uh, in some of France's territories in uh, the Indian uh, Ocean, there's actually an issue of immigration from uh, nearby uh, Africa, which has, has seen people uh, uh, drift towards the anti-immigration policies of Le Pen, which sort of means something very different to them than it might in uh, Europe. And Sophie, is that one you want to add or should we jump on? Because there are quite a lot of questions still to go from the audience. Let, let, I think Ben's done a great job. Let's move okay. on. Okay. Another audience question, um, and we'll come to you first on this, Sophie. What about the 30% abstentions and blank votes? Uh, yeah, 28%. I mean, it is a it is a record. For, well, it's not a record. It was worse in 1969, but it's a, it's three points, nearly three points more than it was um, in 2017. It's still higher. I think it's important to say the turnout rate, I mean, is still higher than in national elections recently in the UK and national elections, the last election in the US. So it's not, I think one has to just put a little bit of context on that. But it is um, nonetheless, you know, worrying the number of people who spoiled their ballot papers, felt that it wasn't the right choice, that neither of these two candidates, there's a two round, in the two round system, you know, there are a lot of people who are not going to like the two uh, last choices. And that's uh, unfortunately the way French democracy works. But uh, people who didn't like those two choices made it known by, you know, ripping up their ballot paper or writing, you know, don't like either of them on their on their piece of paper and putting that in the urn. So the, the, it is it is a worry. Um, I think there's a sort of a, an accompanying worry, which is out there in the discourse at the moment here in France. And that's about uh, there's a kind of querying of Macron's legitimacy somehow because he was elected with a lower turnout than last time because he a lot of his vote was those who didn't want Marine Le Pen to win and therefore it wasn't it was it wasn't necessarily a vote for him um I, and I find that kind of worrying in a, it also in a, in a way because it does re, it does reflect uh, some real questions about 
how far people feel democracy is working for them in France, representative democracy, the sort of uh, constitution France has. But it's also, you know, given that that is the way that the, the, the electoral system, the electoral rules are written in France, you know, the, these are, these are, um, the, these are, these are questions that are understandable, but they're also, you know, there's a lot of, quite a lot of spuriousness about them. And I think that, uh, you know, this is going to be part of what makes governing difficult for Macron, because it's, Mélenchon has been out there every day saying, you know, he doesn't have a mandate, he is, um, uh, you know, this is, he's the worst, the, 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 the worst elected president under the Fifth Republic. It's not, that's not quite true, but it, you, can, you can hear that in the kind of conversation and it's going to be going on right into the campaign. So I think that, uh, yes, it turned out wasn't as high, but it really is important to put it in perspective and see that in terms of the actual numbers of votes that Macron got at the election, uh, they, they, that, that was, you know, not as high as some, but it was a lot higher than others, including uh, François Hollande, for example, in 20, 2012. I think that there's this deep desire to say in Anglo-America that France is in crisis. In fact, we've all been in crisis to do with the long tail of globalization and the financial crisis and, you know, how to kind of distribute resources within countries with left behinds and uh, these sort of citadels of uh, enormous wealth that have appeared. But I think that the fact is that on the key metric, who was in power in this 10 year period or how many people turned out to, to vote or what did they vote for? France has come out more stable than Britain or America. And I really strongly agree with what Sophie said. Like Those figures uh, for turnout in the United States would be extraordinary, never heard of, an amazing turnout. Uh, in the UK, they would be, uh, uh, they would be uh, extraordinary. And I think that we also need to recognise that whilst the British establishment completely lost control of the question of the country's membership of the European Union, and it was defeated uh, by a kind element of the establishment, uh, you know, with populist politics at, at play. And whereas the United States establishment is really still struggling to present or hold on to a vision of what America's uh, doing in, in the world, you know, Macron has continue to beat this drum of the EU, the Euro and European Union mem membership, that even Le Pen had to moderate what she says in public about it. And even Mélenchon, to a certain degree, has had to moderate publicly uh, what, um, what he says uh, about it. So I think that unless Macron can build a party there and really try and build a legacy, there is a question of could a, a Eurosceptic win next time. But they'll be winning on very different terms. And one of the ways that things will be different is that Macron has this amazing historical chance. When he came to uh, power, the worst, uh, uh, the worst, uh, you know, German, uh, one of the worst German chancellors uh, in um, generations in terms of the construction of Europe was in power, Angela, uh, Angela Merkel. Angela Merkel could, with her like refusal to move towards a deeper common European debt. Uh, couldn't have been a worse match for Macron. And the fact that he's outlasted her politically, that he's kept up pushing for more common European debt, and now you've got a uh, Social Democrat, Green-led coalition that's committed to more European debt, at least in beginning to have the conversation about it, I think he has a chance to really try and change 
uh, at least that crucial component of the European uh, of the European Union and how it works. One issue we've touched on but haven't explored in much detail is the impact of the cost of living crisis in this campaign. Um, Sophie, how big a factor do you think that was for voters? I think it was the um, number one concern and it became even, I think it already was at the beginning of the year after Putin invaded Ukraine. I think it became, uh, you know, even more so the minute people saw petrol prices going up. Uh, there was a lot of concern about that, and it's going to continue being the case for obvious reasons with the pressure, inflationary pressures, and particularly on energy prices, but also on food prices um, in in the in the coming the first year or, or or so or more of Macron's mandate. I think one of the things that I found really interesting about the what what worried people during this campaign was that they, if you look at the top ten concerns. Um, this year, not there was one subject that didn't even feature in that top 10, and that's unemployment. Now, I found that absolutely fascinating because five years ago, it was in the top three concerns that unemployment has been sort of considered the curse of the French economy. You know, it's an economy which somehow it's OK, it gets by, there's lots of companies do well, but it just can't create jobs. It's too sort of sclerotic to do that. Well, one thing that's happened over the last five years has actually been uh, an extraordinary, an extraordinary kind of liberation of of that uh, job creating potential, and you've seen unemployment come down. It's still relatively high by the UK standards; it's around seven percent. But Macron's now, you know, officially made full employment an objective for his first year term, which again is astonishing. You know, and who ever thought France would even have that as an, as a as a goal to try and bring about full employment? So the fact that you have Unemployment not at the top of voters' concerns is for me, you know, <laughs> in all the years I've been covering France, I can't, I can never, I can't, I can't, can't think when it wasn't unemployment wasn't the top, the top worry. So yes, cost of living is um, up there and it will remain there. Um, but I think it's interesting also to look at what isn't there and what that says about the last five years. And what about immigration? We've we've again touched on this, but clearly it played a massive role. Um, but. Was this an election fought along culture war issues in the same way uh, that we see in Britain? So obviously banning the hijab was uh, a conversation that we actually we don't, wouldn't tend to have in Britain, but, um, but is a conversation in, in, in France. Um, how much do, were those factors at play? Well, one of the things that I think is, imp- one of the things that I think is important about this election is something quite specific about it, which is... You know, during the pandemic, there was a period where politics almost stopped, where there was just the executive issuing orders, telling people to stay at home, and kind of warning them on that on on you know Instagram ads or uh, making them sign little pieces of paper in France if they went out for a for a jog. And I think that you know the the everyday you know boxing match of politics disappeared more in France than it did in the UK or in Germany or. In Italy, and then Macron didn't quite snap out of that in time. He went straight from COVID mode into war mode. And therefore, I think that this election was characterized by a lot of those emotions, a lot of just politics coming back to the surface, a sense of, uh, of frustration, of protest votes, of d- demand to be heard. You kept on hearing in uh, France that. Why was the campaign so short? The campaign should have been longer. It should have been an exceptionally long uh, campaign. It's so insulting that it was was short. And I think that's part of this sense that France has not been able to have a kind of political debate for um, uh, during that uh, that period. So I think that Macron actually snapped out of it just in time. 
he adjusted pretty well. The rallies he did uh, did you know hit the spot for enough of his campaign, enough of his electorate, and he did show a mark. He did comprehensively win that debate and uh, managed to kind of highlight the flaws of the opposition. And one of them that he highlighted was this, as you said, this issue of banning the veil and how that would really kind of rip uh, French uh, society, uh, uh, French society apart. I go back and forth on this. I'm very worried about uh, Islamophobia in France, about intercommunal relations in France, about the mainstreaming. Uh, of this, there have been moments where of Macron's presidency where I felt that his interior minister, in particular, was playing an almost enabling role with uh, Islamophobia. I've been very, very critical uh, of that, and there were moments of this campaign where I felt kind of alarmed that there'd just been a mainstreaming of it on both the centre and the left and the right. It was sort of present, uh, uh, present. Uh, uh, everywhere. Then again, at the same time, I do think that community relations in France are much better than they were in 2015, where I think they really hit uh, a nadir. I think there's less violence than there was in 2015. I know the Jewish community feels safer than it did in 2015. And I do think that there have been in some aspects of representation and things in French society, there have been some improvements, but I do think it's uh, it's not in a it's not in a good place. And I think that uh, definitely, if I had a chance to sort of criticise Macron to his face, which I would probably be told to immediately leave the room if I attempted to do so, I would. This would be the issue that I would really want to to sort of stress to him as being one of his big failings and something that he really needs to kind of work out or do if he wants to ensure France has a, a liberal future, it really in the long term, and not just for the kind of electoral horizons we've been talking about. OK, uh, I'm getting a little question in. Um, what does Le Pen's loss mean for the far right in other countries? So this is looking beyond France's borders. Will they take note? Um, Sophie and, and Ben, I'd like to come to you both on that. So what does uh, Le Pen's loss mean for the far right in other countries? Here's, a, here's an interesting take on this uh, argument, is that I do think that an element of the far right's success has been that there are some voters that were attracted to its relationship with a strong or an apparently strong Russia. And I think that the far right saw an association with Putin as an electoral asset in France, in Italy, in Hungary, in, uh, you know, and elsewhere. And even the United States, you know, an association with Putin was seen as uh, positive because he was such a strong uh, leader. You know, now Putin is sort of emitting not... Uh, you know, not strongman energy, but sort of panic and disease uh, energy and and disaster energy. It's no longer seen as electorally such a um, a vital asset. And I think that we've already seen uh, the um, that Le Pen try and dial back that association. It's just not as valuable anymore. And I think in Italy we're also seeing uh, some politicians try and scrub the Putin pictures from the uh, website. The optimist would say that um, the French establishment has had more uh, difficult challenges in the past, such as communism, and that the French 
The Communist Party peaked, I believe, 26.2% of the vote. It controlled huge swathes of the country. Uh, it built, controlled whole towns. It had a mass party, mass newspapers. And when the image of the Soviet Union went from being a successful society to really a basket case, that was actually a contri contributing factor to its uh, diminishing. So the optimists might go that the uh, far-right vote is going to have risen and it will have fallen. And one of the contributing factors will be now the changing image of uh, Russia. And it'll be interesting to look at that in France and in uh, and in Italy uh, in particular over the next few years. I, I think that's, that's one, one very good point. I would add to it that um, the question I think is, is interesting because the question is saying, uh, you know, it, the question is, what does Le Pen's loss mean? I think that, don't forget, in France, she's not presenting this as a loss. She just lost the presidency, but she's going into legislative elections. She's, she's on an absolute high. She thinks she's going to, you know, win a swathe of seats at the, at the parliamentary election. She'll have a group in the National Assembly. She's effectively snuffed out this group. This, this movement created by Eric Zemmour on the on the really on the extreme right, who was he was the inheritor of all the sort of worst reactionary nationalist uh, discourse that France has seen over the centuries, and he uh, didn't hesitate to, to to espouse that. And he's he, he only got seven percent in the in the in the first round, and she's going to do everything she can to kill him off. So I think she's on a bit of a high still. It's odd to say that, but it's, uh, it may seem odd, but it's, she's on a bit of a high. So I don't think one should assume that just because Macron has you know defeated her here uh, at, on Sunday at the presidency. A presidential election that that means it's an end to 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 Marine Le Pen or to to, to the force of, of what she stands for. And just quickly on your point, Ben, about how if you ever had the chance to say to say that to Macron, he'd slap you around the face. Having interviewed him several times, he'd love it. I mean, he just loves nothing more than taking people on with an argument. You, that's why it was during it was so painful to have to camp, watch him campaigning because every single person he he meets on the street, he wants to who who says, you know, Macron, you're not doing enough for this, or Macron, we don't like you doing that. He would go straight in there and like, you know, he wants to argue back. So uh, he'd actually he'd, he'd enjoy it. Well. I was thinking more of the instance when there was the little boy that uh, didn't call him Mr. The President and was sort of thoroughly disciplined in front of, uh, in front of the cameras for the indecency uh, of that. <laughs> but that sounds wonderful. Um, there's a great question from the audience, which will be our final subject. We've got four minutes left. So either this one, we might have a final question after this. But do you think he will govern differently in his second term? And if so, how? Sophie, can we come to you first on that? Well, that's what he said he would do on Sunday. Um, he said he promised a new method, a new era, um, and he has promised to be more inclusive, to be more consultative. He's promised to sort of think about ways in which he can take people's views into, into account. I mean, some sort of citizens' assemblies or some form of, of kind of uh, consulting people about particularly big society issues. And one of them is how to deal with, you know, these big end of life issues about euthanasia and, and subjects like that, which are incredibly difficult. They're completely post-partisan, very difficult for those to be discussed, except in a very consultative way. And he's looked at the Irish referendum, for example, on abortion and is quite interested in whether or not there, are, there is a sort of way in which he can, he can or France can take decisions that is not just about, um, you know, them being made at the Elysee. So I think He's at least theoretically and at the level of sort of, you know, the words, the spoken word, he's taken that on board. I think it's um, I think it goes against his instincts. So what I'm going to be interested in watching is how far there's a sort of tension between his understanding intellectually that he needs to do that and his sort of reflex, which is constantly wanting to 
uh, get back involved and, and, and make the decision himself. So uh, we will we'll watch how we'll watch how that sort of tension plays out in, in the in the coming weeks, months um, and obviously years. And Ben, what do you think on that? How will he govern differently in his second term? Um, well, I think that a Fr French presidents, if they win a second term, because they can't run again, they have an incentive to sort of present themselves as sort of fathers of the nation and try and build this sort of legacy for themselves and try and kind of sculpt the national conversation or maybe build a sort of strange theme park or, or, or two uh, around, the, around the country. So he has an incentive to do that. But the difference is, and I think so Sophie was alluding to that, is... He's incredibly young to be president. Most of these guys are incredibly old, like had only just sort of made it to that point, kind of compus mentis, or extremely ill in the case of Mitterrand, didn't have the energy to that he has. And he's, you know, he like he's not that much younger, he's not that much older than me, you know, and uh, I think it would be incredibly frustrating for him to try and sit back and sort of uh, receive delegations and not try and like solve these to cut these endless Gordian knots that kind of uh, trap France and and, uh, and Europe in various forms of stagnation. So, so I don't know. He's got the incentive to, but will probably his instincts, as Sophie said, will uh, overpower that. And I think those are related to his age. Uh, you've given me actually a final little question, which I'll, I'll put to you, Sophie, because you've touched on this, Ben. What does Macron do come 2027? Because yes, as Ben says, he's very young, particularly in, the, in, in comparison with other French politicians, to be finishing. And, and it's an interesting question because in British um, British politics, we've had this where our leaders have sort of finished a bit earlier than they might have done in, in previous generations. And then they're sort of in this funny thing. I mean, obviously, David Cameron ended up in a, in a, in a sort of writing shed, a shepherd's hut. I can't see Macron doing that. What do you, this sort of looking in the crystal ball, what does Macron do come 2027? It's a good question, and he will be 49 years old after serving as the French president for 10 years. It's quite, it's quite mind-blowing, really. Um, uh, humbling. But, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't rule out something really unexpected. You know, he, when he was young, he always wanted to, initially wanted to become an actor, and then he wanted to become a novelist. And he's written unpublished novels that only Brigitte, his wife, has actually read. I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't quite go to the garden shed. I, that, would, that, that, that I don't think would happen. But I would be surprised if he, he disappeared off um, and, and wrote the novel he's always wanted to do. I mean, sometimes I think that his whole life has been a novel that he's writing for himself and he's the leading character in it. So I think, you know, don't rule out something really surprising like that. I think that's a really lovely place to end. Thank you both very, very much. Thank you, Sophie. Thank you, Ben. And thank you very, very much for all of the people who've listened today and contributed questions at Intelligence Square. Thank you. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? 
To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.